Hey guys, welcome back to Down the Line. I'm back with my co-host Sean, and today we're joined by Mr. Reinstein, former vice president of Boston Scientific and current CEO of Serranos, a medical device company with a product that allows for the early detection and monitoring of bleeding complications from vascular access procedures. Mr. Reinstein, it's great to have you with us. Hey, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you envisioned yourself doing after college? So I graduated out of the business school at the University of Georgia, um, Athens, soon to be the um, national champion football team. <laughs> we're, all, we're all hoping, um, or at least those of us in the Bulldog Nation. And so um, after graduating there, I, I went to go work for uh, Procter & Gamble, which, uh, you know, it was an on-campus recruitment uh, process and, and sold to grocery chains and what have you. And at the time, so this is late 80s, early 90s, um, the company called Boston Scientific, they, they basically recruited uh, from these what I'd call sales schools. So the P&Gs, the Black & Deckers, even Gala Wines, these, these companies that were known for recruiting off of college campuses um, and, and really taught how to sell. And they, Boston generally, Boston Scientific generally recruited those of us that had been successful in our careers early on and were promoted into sales management because of the rapid growth at Boston Scientific. At the time in the early 90s, they wanted to hire uh, sales professionals that also had management experience and then put us back into a sales role so that um, we would learn the business, learn the, learn the understanding of, of medical devices, and then uh, be able to step into a management role much sooner than, than maybe normally would have had you not had that experience at a, at a Procter & Gamble. Um, and so that's kind of how it happened um, early on. I was with P&G for only about oh God, two or three years, um, was promoted. And then a year after the promotion, got, got recruited out by uh, Boston Scientific, um, carried the sales bag there for three or four years, moved into a business development role. And I'd always had an interest because of my family, my wife's family, of doing assignments, uh, of, of doing an expatriate assignment. I always had my sight on becoming a CEO of a, of a company, particularly, you know, at that point, a medical device company. And I always felt that the global experience and having uh, lived and worked overseas would be invaluable to a, to a leader of a, of a global company. Uh, and then that proved to be true. My father-in-law actually was the president of uh, Kodak uh, South America for several years. And so Definitely got an interest from that, from him and, and his experience. And so at the time, Boston Scientific had very little um, overseas exposure, uh, but was just getting into it. And when they were looking for somebody to, to go overseas, I had already had my hand up. And, and so it was a, a natural move. The first one was very easy for my wife. We, we moved to Paris and lived there for five years. My son was actually born there. Uh, and then the next assignments were, you know, I think even better, but, uh, you know, maybe not the, the ideal expat assignment on paper. So the next one was uh, we moved to Mexico City uh, and I, it was my first general management experience uh, and then was fairly successful there over, you know, four or five year period. And, and that um, led to a promotion to run um, sort of a regional uh, geography of Asia um, or greater China, so China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Korea, 
and so we moved to Seoul, Korea, which at the time was the largest um, and kind of the most dysfunctional uh, business uh, within that region. Uh, so, so I was there for about three or four years uh, and then repatriated. It was on my way to Boston and ended up uh, being recruited by a company, a Houston-based company uh, called at the time Cyberonics, so a neurostim company down in Clear Lake. And um, was there for about four or five years as a chief commercial officer, um, was, was tapped to be the next CEO. However, the current CEO and you know my boss and, and still remains a very good friend, was um, signed on for four more years. So I, at the time I was like, well, you guys think I'm ready to be a CEO? I'd wanna be a CEO. This has been my, my ambition for some time. So uh, I basically went out looking for a role and, and, and landed uh, in a, my first CEO role with a company called Aptis Endosystems out in the Bay Area. Ran that for three years until it was acquired by Medtronic. And then I'd done a few other um, companies uh, in the space, all medical devices. Probably the one outlier was a, a laser aesthetics company, uh, which taught me I really didn't like that business too much. Um, and then I was at a meeting and ran into a former colleague at uh, who was with me. We were together at Cyberonics, um, which is now called Levanova. Um, and he was on the board of this company, Serranus. And he said, hey, we're, we're thinking about making a leadership change as we, as we pivot towards a, um, a commercialization stage. Uh, and would you be interested? And I'd already known a bit about the company. I'd met with Zoffer, the former CEO, um, a, a year prior. And I even said to Zoffer, I said, look, I know that playbook. You're talking about an adjunctive technology to an existing procedure and, and reimbursed procedure. Uh, and that's the exact uh, model that, that we ran at Aptis uh, pretty successfully. And so um, when when I was approached to come and, and take a look at this, it, it was also good timing for me because uh, the, the nest had become empty. Our, our third child, our youngest, uh, was going off to college. So um, it was an opportunity to get back to Houston, which we had always uh, had our mind uh, that we, we would do eventually. So um Long-winded answer to tell you this is how I ended up in, in Houston and with uh, with Serranus and, and really thrilled to be here because uh, we can talk a bit more about what's what's happening at Serranus. Wow. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so could you describe a little bit about maybe how your day-to-day -day life has maybe changed over the years? So your man management position at Boston Scientific compared to your CEO position at Serranus? So the early years at, at Boston, you know, definitely was selling selling the products, uh, and it was really true market development. We were selling some of the first angioplasty balloons uh, to get on the market. Eventually, uh, stents, which are sort of a scaffolding to keep the arteries open. Uh, but it, you know, these, these markets didn't exist at the time, and so that was you know early on. Um, with Boston, <clears throat> I think at the time I was the 60th sales rep, uh, or no, sorry, the 40th sales rep in the country. Um, eventually, I think that division grew to you know, 150 or so salespeople. Um, and then when I moved to, to Paris, I was in a marketing role, which really turned into a business development role. Um, because we, in the five years I was in Europe, we acquired 15 companies and I was in charge of integrating um, a number of them. And so that was a very, you know, it was a, just every day was, was very unique and different. And then it wasn't really until uh, going into Mexico and then later in Asia where I had 
this general management experience of, of operating and, and living to a P&L and getting a view on uh, all the different functions. Um, and that, quite frankly, was, was the, akin for me, the closest thing to being a CEO, where it was real general management. You know, once a quarter, my boss and his team came in um, for a quarterly business review, which for me is tantamount to being a, a board board meeting that I that I participate in quarterly here today, or as a CEO would would do. Um, so that's where the similarity is. But but those early days at uh, you know Boston Scientific was was very unique. Um, and I've, I said I was there 17 years, and I, you know, every it was it was as if I worked for five different companies over that 17 year period because, you know, we grew from a private company of I, I don't even remember the revenue, probably you know 400, 500 million. I was employee number 900, um, and when I left, there was over 35,000 employees. So it was very different uh, over those years. Uh, and then, you know, when I got to Cyberonics, this Houston-based company, now Levanova, a small company, uh, I think a market cap of about two or three hundred million, uh, had lost a lot of money. It was really just some, some I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a, an easy task, but, but it really, because of the way the company had been run prior, was, was fairly dysfunctional. And it was just coming in with, with Dan Moore, the CEO, um, former Boston Scientific guy, we'd worked together uh, there as well. And it was just, you know, basically, you know, what do we need to do to get to profitability? What do we need to do to, to get revenue going in the right trajectory and turning this thing around? And, and four years later, the market cap was about $2 billion and uh, obviously heading heading in the right direction. And eventually they merged with a, a cardiology company after I had left and, and created a market cap. I think they're four to six billion. It's fluctuated of recent, but, uh, you know, this, this is now a significant entity, um, still with a very large presence uh, here in Houston. Today, you know, the, the cyberonics work is, is very similar to what I was doing in kind of those general management roles at, at, uh, at Boston Scientific. That's interesting. You worked at all these different companies that were making a lot of money. What kind of drew you to a startup company like Cyberonics at such a young stage? So for me, you know, my, my interest was to uh, run a company, so be you know the CEO of a company, and and really have the the accountability responsibility for uh, for for its success. Um, I felt like you know it was definitely a part of of the leadership at Boston Scientific, but it was it was very much um, kind of focused within within my lanes. Um, Cyberonics was a little bit different in that I was you know a section. Uh, 16 officer in the company. Um, I did a lot of different things beyond the, just the commercialization and there was government affairs um, and and even we were publicly traded. So I did a lot of the uh, investor relations work. And then, you know, really when you're becoming a first time CEO, um, they're generally not handing out those opportunities in, you know, multi-billion dollar market cap companies. Uh, usually, if you're going to be a first-time CEO, you, you're going to be going to a startup in med devices, um, which, quite frankly, w- was fine for me. Um, the only thing I really had not done before in the in all the different roles that I was in, you know, be it general management or even commercialization, but but the only thing I had not done was raised money um, from from venture capitalists or or other uh, investors, um, and so. 
at the so when I was recruited to Aptus, you know, I was recruited by venture capitalists. So they'd already had some funding, and I needed to go out and raise a new round. Um, and that was unique. However, for me, it was it was very much akin to just selling. I mean, it was you're going out and and selling the story in order to get investment in. Um, and so this was 2012. Just coming out of the recession, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, venture capital dollars uh, being thrown around, particularly in medical devices. Um, and so I felt very fortunate that within about a month or so of going out to raise the money, I'd had a term sheet. They'd already been looking but um, at the company, but uh, you know, it was, it was a, a $25 million round uh, uh, led by a new investor. So it was, it was very interesting. I mean, it was very fortunate for me at the time. And then, um, and that's, that's actually what was very different about Serranus that, that quite frankly surprised me in that here we had a FDA approved product, very similar to Aptus, adjunctive technology, very similar to Aptus. Um, but I joined Serranus in the middle of March, 2020. <laughs> and if uh, you recall, there was a, a global pandemic brewing at the time. <laughs> So very difficult uh, moment in time to try to raise money, um, particularly, I guess those first few months, uh, there was just so much uncertainty. So the VCs were, were, were you know, scratching their head trying to figure out which end was up. And so it, it kind of put the investments uh, on pause. And then, of course, you know, they still have their, their fund life of 10 years and they knew that they needed to deploy the capital that had, the LPs had committed to them. And so then they obviously started, you know, looking for investment opportunities. And that became a double-edged sword because now everyone was accustomed to Zoom or, or other mediums to, to basically have meetings. And their deal flow and efficiency to see deals just grew exponentially uh, to the point where, you know, one VC buddy of mine said, you know, I used to, we used to look at 80 deals a month and now we can look at 800. And so yeah. maybe that's an extreme, but uh, I mean, they, they definitely were not short of deal uh, investment opportunities. And that became the double-edged sword. And, and so what happens is these VCs, you know, there's a smaller pool of venture capital money that, that invests in life sciences and a much smaller pool that invests specifically in medical devices. And then when they start applying filters because they're looking at so many different opportunities, they're saying, well, when it comes to medical device, we want to invest in the actual therapeutic product like the valve or the um, ablation catheter or what have you. And you're more of an adjunctive, a diagnostic even. And so that we, we got boxed out or filtered out of, of so many um, investor from so many investors uh, that it took a, quite a bit of time to, to get this, this company funded. Ultimately uh, Baird who has been looking at, at opportunities in Houston for some time, They've actually looked at Serranus um, well before I got here and then took another look uh, while I was, you know, once I got in place, um, as well as, uh, you know, one of our uh, individual investors was Dan Alterman, um, had encouraged Baird to take a look. They had, I think they had done some deals in the past. Dan is the former CEO of uh, the Memorial Hermann uh, Hospital Healthcare System. 
And so he encouraged Baird to take a look. And, and in fact, they did. And they led the round. It was joined by S3 Ventures out of Austin. And so we closed on a nearly $13 million round uh, July of last year. Um, and then new board gets put into place. And, and uh, you know, now we're off to the races. So you've talked a lot about your desire to become a CEO and lead a company. And you finally got that at Serena's. How many years from the start of your career did it take to finally become a CEO? And do you have any advice to your younger self on becoming a CEO maybe sooner? So I started out uh, my career in the late 80s um, and became a first-time CEO in 2012. So call it uh, 22, 23 years uh, from when I started uh, my career. Um and I guess I was in my 40s. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I may have had an, uh, some opportunities prior. Uh, there were some, some opportunities, but I, I really liked what I was doing at Boston Scientific. I think that certainly groomed me with the opportunity to work for a large company, but still kind of run what I'd consider a small business, uh, you know, general management of a $30 million business was Boston Scientific Mexico. Um, the experience in Asia was multiple countries with revenues in the 400 million range. And then Cyberonics was about a hundred million dollar company, but a, um, but a public company. So with, and being, being an officer in the company, um, allowed me to, to, to be involved in, you know, things I wouldn't normally have been at, at a much larger company like Boston Scientific. And then the jump to, to Aptis, my first CEO role was, was um, you know, fairly different because it was a, you know, venture-backed private equity uh, funded company um, versus the public companies I'd been in. So I, I, you know, I guess what I would say is the most likely path for becoming a CEO sooner in, in this industry would be, you know, a private uh, company looking for experience. Um, you know, my, my experience would, has always been towards commercialization, but I would say there are CEO opportunities for earlier stage companies for non-commercial. So, you know, it, it can take, you know, five to 10 years to get a product developed through clinicals and onto the market. And you it would be a waste for someone like me to be running in the company at that point um, in time. You know, I, I, there's no need for a commercial CEO to be babysitting a science project. So if you're coming out of the sciences and you're, 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 or, or even uh, um, on the technical side, you know, R and D side, uh, there's, there's plenty of opportunities to run companies in the earlier stages Um as long as it's you know a good idea and a good pathway to commercialization and you can get funding and that's really the the most probably the most significant barrier for for any first time ceo or ceo um, of an early stage company is to get it funded um, and you know even if it's the founder and developer inventor of the product uh, it's not always the best person to run the company could you walk us through what the steps look like after the technology has been developed? In other words, what is the order of events that a medical device company goes through to really bring the product to market? Do you raise funds, begin research trials, get FDA approval? Walk us through that. Yeah, so it, um, you, you definitely need to get funded. Um, 
you know, in the case of Serranos, it was it was uh, kind of friends and family funding early on, and that's a, that's how a lot of of medical device companies get funded. I I don't think it's necessarily the best. Um, I, I while it's probably a, a bit more dilutive um, and uh, difficult to get the funding, you know. Institutional healthcare investors, I think, bring a lot to the table, like a Baird and, and an S3 who are in Serranos, or at the time when I was running Aptis, uh, we had U.S. venture partners. So these these fairly large funds, you know, multi-hundred million dollar funds uh, that lead the round, run the round, and then they, you know, then become your board. Um, but first things first, you, you've got to get the project funded. And then, you know, once funded, it depends on what type of product you're dealing with. So in medical devices, you either have, you have two paths to getting uh, regulatory approval. One is a, well, call it three, because uh, one's an offshoot. There's the 510K process, which is um, a, a little less arduous. Uh, they're still probably going to have to do some clinical trials and some clinical work uh, to be done. Um, but it's, it's not as rigorous as a PMA or pre-market, uh, approval process, which, uh, is a negotiation with the FDA on how many patients, what the trial design will look like, what the follow-up will be. Um, and it's, like I said, it's a negotiation to get just the trial design defined with the FDA. And then you've got to go and do the study and all of the follow-up, usually it's blinded so that you don't know what you're going to get at the end of it until you flip that card and look at the data. And so as an investor, you know, early on, and this is the early stage investors and probably why there aren't as many of them, uh, you know, you're taking a big risk on the technology uh, working. And then the, you know, it, it may even work well, but the study design may be such that you can't enroll patients or the way the FDA requires the enrollment that you don't really get necessarily the right patient uh, into the study. So there's there's a lot of risk from even after you get beyond the technology uh, from from the regulatory. And then the next step, uh, if you get through all those hurdles, is reimbursement. If you can't get the product paid for, then you you, you really aren't going to be successful in in the marketplace. Um, Unless in the case of Serranos, we don't have a specific reimbursement, but we do are we're adjunctive to procedures that do have a reimbursement. So in the case of mechanical circulatory support, where we can identify bleeds early and save the hospital a significant amount of money, that reimbursement for that procedure is is about eighty to ninety thousand dollars and fairly profitable for um, the hospitals, unless they have a bleed. Uh, which we can we can help them identify and prevent the expense associated with it. So, um, you know, the kind of the rules of, of medical devices are, are pretty straightforward. Um, A, does the product work? B, can you prove that it works? <laughs> C, can you prove that it works, that people will believe you, meaning physicians and, and care teams and administrators and what have you? And then, you know, D, and most importantly, can you get it paid for? Um, and those those really are the four elements of of getting a product through a process and into the into the market. 
Could you describe the early bird technology that you guys have developed at Serenus for our listeners, and how long has it been used for in commercial use? Is it mostly used in hospitals or other healthcare entities also using it? Yeah, so today it's, it's only used in hospitals, and it's in conjunction with these endovascular procedures. So <clears throat> what, uh, what has happened going back 30 years is there's been this, there's been this conversion from open surgical procedures. So you used to have coronary artery disease. They would crack open your chest and go in and, and bypass your arteries. Uh, well, about 25, 30 years ago, the first angioplasty was done so you could go more elegantly into the body through um, your, call it your plumbing. Uh, so you go through a, um, an artery in your leg, the femoral artery, and you traverse up to the heart via guide wires and catheters. And once you get into the heart, you can expand that artery with an angioplasty balloon, and then eventually stents were developed. Um, and now there's um, even valves, uh, <clears throat> aortic valves are being replaced through this transcatheter technique. So it's been phenomenal for, for the population, for the world and patients to, because it's opened up more and more opportunities for patients to get therapy. Um, those that could not withstand an open heart surgery and be in the hospital, you know, under anesthesia for hours and in the hospital for days, if not weeks, they can now have this procedure done. However, <clears throat> the downside of, of this conversion is the, the entry site in the leg and that artery in the leg um, is prone to having uh, bleeding and bleeding complications and formation of hematomas that can result in longer hospital stays, transfusions, uh, and in, in some cases you, you increase the risk of mortality. Uh, these patients that have bleeds have a three times uh, the rate of, of death if they have a bleed versus not. Um, and these bleeds, while most are mitigated um, by the hospital, the care teams in the hospital, the cost to um, manage those complications is extremely high. They tend to go into the, the cardiac uh, IC units, um, intensive care units. They more likely have transfusions, longer hospital stays until the hematoma subsides. Uh, and all those costs are not, there's no additional reimbursement to the hospital. And on average, those, those, um, the cost to mitigate these bleeding complications is about $20,000. And the way this product was developed, it was uh, Mehdi Razavi. He's an electrophysiology physician um, at Texas Heart. He, you know, had a, had a patient with a very significant bleeding complication and um, basically developed an idea, this idea where if you could have something indwelling during the procedure and then for a couple hours after the procedure while the patient's recovering from the procedure, uh, that could measure the patient's bioimpedance. So we all have an electrical signal in our body and our device measures that signal. And when blood starts to uh, call it leak from the artery and just gets into the tissue uh, and eventually forms a hematoma, well ahead of that, our device detects that the blood is in the tissue because that signal gets reduced because of the conductivity of blood. Um, so that signal gets reduced and our device sets off. There's a bit of an, there's an alarm uh, and, it, and a light and it informs the care team, hey, you've got the beginning of a, of a bleed starting. And there's a level one, a level two and a level three notification. And at level three, uh, you're 
is is when the patient probably has about 200 milliliters of blood extra arterial in the tissue and that tells the care team and but you know you're well ahead of a that's less than half a unit of blood so you're still well ahead of the formation of a hematoma and so this just informs the care team that that they need to act and generally that act action is uh to just hold pressure in and around the groin that they wouldn't normally have known. And particularly if the patients, uh, many of whom are obese, because there is so much tissue, because there is so much um, uh, amount of blood that has to go into the tissue before you'll even see the beginnings of a, of a hematoma, there, there could be multiple units of blood um, that, that gets into the tissue before uh, you know you have a problem. Uh, generally, you probably see a, maybe a, a drop in blood pressure and hemoglobin. Uh, so that's becomes their, their indication. But at that point, you know, that patient is definitely going to be longer in the hospital, most likely have a transfusion and go into the ICU. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of important use for this in terms of cost and patient outcomes. But how do you get widespread buy-in, especially when some physicians are hesitant to change their ways? I mean, do you have to first convince insurance companies and, and government agencies so that the, you know, quote unquote, standard of care changes? Or do you just go to the hospitals directly and pitch them on the product? So the process is definitely, you know, getting approval. Uh, so the FDA approved this device in 2019. And then it wasn't until we were funded that I could hire some sales professionals, uh, which we started doing in Q3 of last year. And Q4 was really when we got started. Um, so we've, we've only been at it for about three or four months of, of really, you know, trying to, to get this product in the hands of physicians. And there's always an evolution in, in any product, regardless of, of this industry or others. Is you know you, you go out and you look for the early adopters, um, and we've had quite a few of those. Uh, and what surprised me, and this is where the early bird and the Serrano situation is very different than what I inherited at, at Aptis, where we were adjunctive to just one procedure, so the the aortic aneurysm repair. Um, but with, with the Serranus early bird, we can be adjunctive to multiple procedures, up to seven or eight different procedures. We're currently focused on uh, this mechanical circuitry support, so patients that can't um, deliver um, or pump the blood from their heart efficiently for all their organs to be sustained during the procedure, during a coronary procedure, um, is a, has a very high rate of bleed. And what surprised me is the physicians um, and, and even many of the administrators of hospitals, they're well aware that this is a problem that they, they, they need to address. And it is costing them money and to the, to the, to the point where they're, they're even considered to either reduce or completely shut down these programs uh, because of, of the expense. Um, same to, to a lesser extent, but still exists for the valve replacement procedures. So those are the two areas we're focused on. Uh, and the, 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 the process is identify a clinical champion, so a physician, interventional cardiologist that does these procedures, that faces these situations of, of patient complications, uh, and then they become called the champion to get it through the administration process. Hospitals have become very, very um, cost focus and, and look at something like this, which doesn't have specific reimbursement, um, a little bit with a jaded eye. And so we, there's a whole process that we have to demonstrate 
uh, our ability to improve patient care and at the same time save them money. We can do that. We have uh, some data that allows us to, to demonstrate that. Um, we also have the physicians uh, championing it. Uh, but it, it's a process. It takes a while. Um, you know, some hospitals, you know, took a couple weeks, uh, but most take, you know, three, four, five months before they can go through their value assessment uh, process and, and approve the product within their, their hospital institution. Uh, we recently, I think um, you, you may have saw, seen in, in, the, uh, um, in the social media yeah. that Memorial Herman just adopted, uh, at least the medical center uh, location just adopted. We were approved in all Memorial Herman uh, healthcare systems um, wide. Uh, we also have approvals in, in multiple other um, GPO or, or um purchase organizations and, and uh, integrated delivery systems. So we're well on the way to getting the early adopter moving into the medium adopter. I think with our study that we initiated as well, that's when we can start talking about standard of care for these procedures. So I guess as a closing question, and for a lot of the premiums that kind of want to go after these CEO positions, first question, do you think that an MBA or any other business-related degrees necessary to work as a CEO of a medical device company? And what advice do you have for students interested in a career in the business of medical devices like yourself? Like what kind of activities can they do during their undergrad career to prepare for it? So to your first question, do you need an MBA? Um, I, w- I, I would say no. I actually don't have one. However, I did obtain some experiences that I think were probably far more valuable. And I did do some graduate work while I was in Paris. I uh, you know, attended some some graduate studies at INSEAD, uh, which I think was very helpful for me in the in sort of the general management uh, area. I think if you're coming out with a technical or or life sciences medical background uh, or education, then getting some business uh, experience is important. Um, you know, really understanding how to to manage a PL and a balance sheet is is critical. Um, but, you know, as I said, I, I didn't learn that formally. I'd learned it kind of on the job with some really good finance people that taught me along the way. And I would also say that if, if that is the desire to, to run a company, I think it's probably more befitting for someone coming uh, without a business background to, to step into an earlier stage company. You know, one, the company that needs to uh, develop the technology, maybe get the intellectual property in place, get the um, the, the product through the the technical uh, risks, as well as then further down the road, get it through the the regulatory or clinical risks. Um, you know, that's that would be you know less of a commercial person or business type person, and more of the the technical uh, and and life sciences background. I, I, that's that's where I would encourage. Someone coming out of uh, or early in their career uh, with with the technical or life science back um, education to to focus on earlier stage technologies. All right, it seems that our time is up, Mr. Reinstein. But thank you so much for speaking to us, and it was truly a pleasure getting to know more about your important work at Aranas. Good, I appreciate the interest, and uh, thanks thanks for having me on. Perfect, but yeah, thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you in the future. Peace.